Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs by Margaret Young. We're in chapter five. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, I tried to give you some warning. Oh, I am so, so sorry. We're on page 22. Uh, I'm so sorry. Staying for a time at the Shakespeare Hotel where Daniel had taken shelter while waiting, praying for his little Marguerite, praying that his little Marguerite would set sail before the late summer when her ship might run into winter storms had been one of the most colorful of the picturesque socialist characters streaming them onto the always millennial continent. Will, uh, Wilhelm Wittling had sought refuge here as an exile in 1848, but had returned to Europe, sub Rosa, when the revolutionary forces were about to boil over in France and Germany and Austria and inundate the old world. And then had returned to the harbor city in the New World in 1849 in flight from the failure of the revolution, in which the red caps storming the barricades had been moved down by the military representatives of international capitalistic interests, whose kingdoms knew no boundary lines but those between rich and poor, and the cobblestone streets were turned into seas of blood, red as the red roses in that June, which was the month of brides, dead brides, dead bridegrooms. Wilhelm Wittling was ten years older than Marx and not about to take his cues from the younger man. He had not been able to plow through Marx's dialectical materialism or all those vast abstractions looming in his way, all as cold and impersonal as icebergs. The philosophy of monolithic Hegelianism was enough to put Wilhelm Wittling into something worse than a polar fog, whether Arctic or Antarctic, that absolute which was incompatible with divine transcendence, in Marx's view, relegating the religion of Christ to the status of a hot water bottle for some individuals, the utterance of the word bird was evidently not the same as the bird itself. Among the many pre-Marxist philosophers who had influenced Wilhelm Wittling was Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, the swift-thinking philosophic anarchists of change who could still state when it seemed that the fires of revolution been extinguished except for buried sparks, that he could envision a world in which it would be easier to conceive of society without government than the society with government. Society just now is like the butterfly just out of the cocoon which shakes its gilded wings in the sunlight before taking flight. Tell it to crawl back into the silken covering to shun the flowers and to hide itself from the light. Wilhelm Wittling was the bastard son of a very theatrical, musically inclined young French officer of the Napoleonic artillery, who, before his departure from the realm of snow and ice that was the dominion of the Sphinx or Talma of the North, Tsar Alexander I, Tsar Alexander I, a journey from which he would never return, had deposited the seed of his loins into the not stony ground of a poor little housemaid who was the daughter of a stonemason in the beautiful cathedral town of Magdeburg on the Elbe, where the marketplace was dominated by the statue of Otto the Great, a medieval emperor for whose feet the fishing folk had laid on a May day each year bundles of field flowers and glasses of pale lookers that caught the light of the sun. The child had lived in such abject poverty that there would not have been 
even an old cock's head or feet or the, for the soup during the invasion of Madeburg uh, by the wild-maned Cossacks on their wild-maned horses, if he had not helped his old grandmother peddle matches, lamp wicks made of loosely twisted threads, tobacco for clay pipes, coffee mixed with chicory, playing cards, whatever might appeal to the Cossacks, whose emperor was a believer in numerous aspects of ameliorative social reform, although well knowing that human gratitude was as rare a thing as a white raven. Oh my god, the length of the sentences are incredible and very tough to read. Phew, Marguerite. One of the troubles springing up like brambles in the way of the Tsar, who was the representative of Christ, was that the devil Napoleon, by his betrayals, had slowed up the utopian movements of reform that he had hoped to introduce into darkest Russia in such a way that it would be his kingdom, which would provide beacon lights to the world when it was in storm. Appalled by the savage spirit of Napoleon, whom he when he had caused the execution of a member of royalty. Aha! I read this in Josephine Bonaparte's biography. Uh, that was in in Hying. In in Hying. Um, there was a there was a mistake, and he was going to rescind that execution, but the uh, message was never delivered. He had expressed his disapproval to him and had received the reply that a sense of moral outrage seemed strange, ill-fitting when it came from an emperor who had also slain a member of royalty. The man whom Napoleon I had killed, according to the emperor Napoleon, had been his own father, the tyrannical Paul I, who was rumored to have worn the crown of the Romanovs even at family dinner parties, who was convinced that his children were spying on him. When he had spoken of chopping off a row of heads as lightly as if they would were the plumes of dandelions, he had seemed to have his children in mind, and particularly the one who would be the next Tsar. Grand Duke Alexander, who never wanted to be a Tsar at all, and had planned to descend from the throne before he had ascended it, to go into exile. He had been persuaded, however, by revolutionaries to abandon this self-centered existence, to remain at the center of temporal power, at least for a time before his spirit should take flight. Time enough to bring calm where there had been chaos, and to provide for his suffering people a freedom that would be upheld by law, it would be something more than a constitution in name only, for it would have teeth capable of biting despotism in its many manifestations. So Alexander I also made an appearance. Oh, I'm so glad I read that Josephine biography. Alexander I also made an appearance in the biography after Napoleon was defeated because um, they were wondering what to do with... Uh, not Napoleon's family, because he had married... Uh, um, Danish princess, I think. He had divorced Josephine and married a Danish princess. And so her children, so there was, so it was, uh, up to Alexander to decide what to do with his ex-wife, which was Josephine and her two children, uh, because Eugene, uh, uh, followed Napoleon. Um, he was completely loyal to Napoleon. And so was, um, uh, not Eugenia. Hortense? I think it was Hortense. That was her name. Oh, so that's I, that's really cool that my, my reading that biography played into this. Gave me some other, gave some, me some more information for this, uh, for Young's book. That's what reading a lot does. Okay. Alexander I had been lifted prematurely to the throne by the murder of the old Tsar, which he had described as an act of God, at the same time that he had seen his father's multi-fact fractured, multi-broken body, 
had been infused, it has seemed, with the divine mission of alleviating the sufferings of his people in orderly ways, among them the giving of relief to farmers. For surely it cannot be that, as in some old myth of the soul's passage, the diabolical spirit of his dead father had passed into him, the vessel of God, and would allow to him no peace from, for the bringing into darkest Russia of that light of reform which might ultimately provide, perhaps when he himself had suffered death and transfiguration, a beacon light to the world. Okay, so it seems that this is off to a slow start. Like, we're definitely being treated to the worldview around which Deb's, uh, Deb's family uh, were involved in. I guess it's to show, which is which is very good. It's it's to show the... I didn't expect it to go into this depth. It's to show the world events and things and going on that would... I guess it, well, it seems to indicate that it would influence um, Debs' family to further explain how he came to be. This is what uh, people don't understand. I mean, it's not that I think communism... Well, that, we've, that there has ever been a true communism. I don't think there has more communist dictators. It's more of dictatorship. Um, uh, socialism, it's around that way. Um, but what I can't understand is that the, the, the despotism, the corruption, the um, tyranny of uh, the predatory capitalism that was practiced in these countries like Russia, Cuba, China, um, and China, but, but China might not have been the, the capitalism or more of the, and then the feudalism in Russia. Like this, the people, the poor people were like poor. We're talking destitute. I'm not sure if we can comprehend um, unless we look at some other countries that are desperately poor right now, of the conditions that people were living under, having these rulers. And then, so, uh, and Marx and them were like, there's got to be a better way. So I understand that. I don't understand why other historians and people can't see that. Like, they were so beaten down. Like, there was no hope for them. So... So there had to be a better way. And if, I guess, if, I don't know, there'd be an, you know, a modicum of humanity in any of the the rich people or the people in power that um, uh, they could have seen this and been like, okay, <laughs> like, okay, we've like, done enough like we need to pull it back and they like and they can't like that and then they never can and i don't see it that that's what something that they can do this this self-examination that they can the powers of be can go like huh i think we've done enough we probably should back off or you know not be so evil or not be so monstrous but anyway so then you end up with these really um um it's like you have to push back uh, to a, a fanatical d degree to get any kind of, you know, balance in between. If if it even ever comes to a balance, which obviously it hasn't. Okay. Anywho, thanks for listening. Bye.